This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit, in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting's 2FM radio stations in Michigan and the Midwest, and Supertalk Mississippi Media's 12 radio stations and 50 affiliate stations in the South. We thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I'm Joe Lott and Sami, your co-host, joined by Natasha Sodorch, economist and co-founder of the International Leaders Summit and the Jerusalem Leaders Summit, and our distinguished guest hosts and presenters, the former governor of Mississippi, Phil Bryant, and the Honorable Morris McTeague, QSO. America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C. brings together leading voices from business, government, media, technology, healthcare, and the public policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Spotify, Google, and Fireside. Visit iLeadersSummit.org. iLeadersSummit.org. Welcome to America's Roundtable. Warmest greetings to our engaged listeners. It is Saturday morning, and welcome to America's Roundtable. This weekend on America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., we're delighted to welcome Mayor Gabriel Groisman. Mayor Groisman has been serving his community since November 2014, first being elected as a councilman, and then in November 2016 was elected as the mayor of Bell Harbor, Florida. He wrote and passed the nation's first municipal anti-BDS ordinance in December 2015 and was the first in the nation to codify a uniform definition of anti-Semitism in December 2017. Groisman's subsequent dealings with a local church who had previously boycotted and divested from Israel is the first documented success story of anti-BDS legislation. Mayor Groisman has presented on two occasions at the United Nations in New York as a legal scholar on combating unjust and illegal commercial and academic boycotts of Israel. In his private life, Groisman is also a practicing attorney and government affairs consultant. In 2017, Groisman was named as a member of Advisory Council for Israel and Middle East Issues by then-Congressman Ron DeSantis, chairman of National Security Subcommittee. Gabriel Groisman is a partner at LSN Partners, where he focuses on government relations in correlation with the firm's state and national practice. And on this note, we welcome Mayor Groisman to America's Roundtable. A good morning to you. Welcome, Mayor Groisman. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, the economy of the state of Florida is the fourth largest in the United States uh, with a GDP of $1.2 trillion in 2021. According to International Monetary Fund, if Florida were a sovereign nation, it would rank as the world's 16th largest economy in 2021, slightly smaller than Mexico, but larger than Indonesia, Switzerland, Turkey, Netherlands, and Sweden, to just name a few. Based on the U.S. Census, Florida tops the list in the absolute numbers of net domestic migration and the net international migration. And Florida's net domestic migration, meaning people that moved from other states to Florida, minus those that left Florida for other states, in the period from 2020 to 2021, was over 220,000 people. This was the largest influx of people moving to any state in America. Those years are also COVID years. And during this time, Florida's governor, Ron DeSantis, applied among the most common sense COVID mitigation measures, balancing between economic damage and loss of jobs while sheltering elderly and immunocompromised. Compared to other states, businesses and schools in Florida remain mostly open during the pandemic. Mayor Groisman, what are your thoughts about this trend of growing population in Florida, its economic and political impact, and what do you observe as the most important ingredients, if you will, 
that attract Americans from other states to move and live in Florida? That's a great question. Thank you. COVID was really a stress test on government. Before you take a stress test or before you're, you as a person, you're having uh, any sort of, God forbid, issue uh, where your body is put into a stressful situation, you don't really know the condition of your heart, right? Government is similar. Before COVID, you had all these political philosophies that were being thrown around by local elected officials and governors around the country about how they think they should best govern their states or their cities. You know, we saw issues here and there rise up in places like Portland and San Francisco with rampant homelessness and crime. But other than those, those hotspots, it all remained in a way philosophical. COVID put us in this stress test where we said, okay, now let's see how this, these forms of government actually work when things get tough. And really under the leadership of Governor DeSantis, our state really has shined because we've shown that through common sense leadership, through practical measures that really allow people to raise their families and go out to work and be smart and help people and provide the necessary healthcare that people do need. And we're, Florida did a great job in rolling out the vaccines with, through the private sector, putting them in supermarkets and in, in drugstores, places that, of course, people criticized, but that was the best way to get things rolled out. And of course, we have no income tax in Florida and it's a business-friendly business community. Prior to the last two years, you wouldn't think that the fact that we have mayors and a governor that are inviting to businesses, that that would be a driving force. Uh, but today in South Florida, uh, with my neighboring mayor, Francis Suarez, we have a cryptocurrency conference with people coming from all over the country. Last week was an NFT conference. Next week is Emerge, which is a, a Latin American tech conference. It's one after the other after the other. This is the driving force of, of all these, the confluence of so many great things of good governance, good business energy, South Florida in particular, but really from Orlando on down, even, you know, the Southern parts of Florida, we have people from all over the world coming together and we just want to be free and have a free economy. And, uh, and when you put together those ingredients and people come together, then the magic happens and the private businesses have really, really uh, shined and it's really only the beginning. Yeah, indeed, Florida has really become the bastion of what we would consider economic liberty. And uh, you all have certainly led the way and it's not just something that happened overnight. It, you all have been working hard as legislators, as individuals, as elected officials to making sure you have the right environment. Now, segueing into a topic that has been of great interest to us as International Leaders Summit, a think tank, as well as America's Roundtable Broadcast Media, we have been addressing the great concerns of this growing BDS movement and the rise of anti-Semitism. And Mayor Groisman, you were considered among your peers and leading business networks, civil society and media groups as an advocate for the state of Israel and a critic of the boycott, divestment, sanctions, the BDS movement that has been constantly targeting the Jewish state of Israel. And in January 21, 2022, the Jerusalem Post published a piece titled, and I quote, the annual anti-Semitism report was published by the World Zionist Organization and the Jewish Agency. Last year was the most anti-Semitic year in the last decade, with at least 10 anti-Semitic incidents happening on an average every single day. And according to this report, while the average number of incidents was over 10 a day, the real number is likely much higher since so many incidents go unreported. The main anti-Semitic incidents were graffiti, desecration, vandalism, and propaganda, both physical and verbal violence, that still comprised almost a third of them, unquote. 
and reports that we have seen and we've talked about is that during the Hamas attacks of Israel last year, and when Israel defended its sovereign state, this apparently fueled anti-Semitism in the West. And Mayor Groisman, what is your read when observing efforts at the nation, state, and local levels across our country to address anti-Semitism? And what can the Biden administration, state governors, state legislators, and engaged citizens do to confront hatred targeting Jewish communities in America and beyond? I'll start with the last question. What can the Biden administration, the local state administrations, local civil society, local leaders, what can they do to respond to the rise of anti-Semitism all over the world, actually, not just in the United States, but focusing on the U.S.? The answer is simple, and the answer is zero tolerance, right? This is something that as a society we should have zero tolerance for whether it's uh, people that are coming down, driving down to our community in South Florida to harass Jewish school children before they're uh, driving into school for a week, or you're physically threatening people, driving around physically threatening Jews around South Florida. You travel up, that's mostly from white supremacist groups, actually, who sent me some nice emails yesterday and the day before um, attacking me based on me standing up to them on, on social media. The social media is what I call the land of the brave, where people will say anything. But, you know, if you travel up to New York, it's an, it's an entirely different enemy that's coming after the Jewish people. It's actually a lot from the African-American community, unfortunately, in the New York area, whether it's from the Black Israelite Church or otherwise. And if you travel on the West Coast, you have it from left-wing extremists on college campuses Right, whether it's in California, in Oregon, or in, in Michigan, where I went to school, in academia around the entire country. And we see it infiltrating in politics as well. The only way to respond to it is to respond to everything and to do it forcefully. Uh, the efforts to end anti-Semitism, I think, is a misnomer. There's no ending anti-Semitism. It's a world, world's oldest hatred in every society in history. The woes of the society at some point are blamed on the Jewish people. And that's a, a hallmark of anti-Semitism. It's something that is Jews we've dealt with forever and we'll continue to deal with and it makes us stronger because we know how to deal with it but the only way to deal with it is through strength and resolve and to engage our government also to make sure the government has zero tolerance towards it um, at all levels and one part of the anti-semitism is also bds movement boycott divest and sanction israel which ends up hurting arabs and jews alike and i, I remember when we as part of the delegation of the jerusalem leaders summit in 2016 uh, we visited elected officials actually that we brought from america and europe and jerusalem leaders summit visited barkan industrial park in judea and samaria also known as the West Bank. Some 160 factories in the area were providing 7,000 jobs, with Arabs representing 60% of the workforce. Uh, they were receiving three times higher salaries than their fellow Arabs under Hamas in Gaza. The unemployment rate among the Arabs was at 60% in Gaza versus 16% in Judea and Samaria. So, you know, there's no logic in applying the boycott, divest, and sanction Israel, which ends up hurting Arabs and Jews alike. Yeah, the, the BDS movement is not a pro-Palestinian movement. It's an anti-Israel movement. The, the BDS is a movement that its goal is to destroy the state of Israel. They tried to do it first economically and failed. They're continuing to do so now. Uh, by going through corporate social responsibility policy, CSR, now it's being called ESG. They're going through these policies. You saw it with companies like Airbnb, who for a time boycotted Jewish listed homes in Judea and Samaria and the West Bank, but with Arab listed homes across the street, those were allowed to be listed 
Um, that didn't happen overnight. That's part of the BDS movement's infiltration to Amnesty International, who then put someone or had uh, had contact with Airbnb and was able to convince them to make these changes. The same thing that happened with Unilever on Ben and Jerry's. And there's there's a lot more that's happening. Of course, it hurts Palestinians, it hurts Arab Israelis, and it hurts Israelis. Now, ultimately, the Israeli economy is doing fine, but the it's not just doing fine; it's growing and it's stronger than ever. But People can't, can't miss the point because the point is that they're trying to separate Israel from the Jewish Jews identity in the United States. So if you go to academic circles, anywhere from in political circles to universities, and you dive deep into the BDS movement like I have, what they, all they're trying to do is say, okay, no, we don't hate Jews, we just hate Israel. So Israel is a key component of a Jewish identity of who we are as Jews, as Jewish people. So you can't separate Zionism, which is just the philosophy, the theory that Jews have the right uh, to live in their ancestral homeland. That's an integral part of, of our prayers, of our of our culture, of our of everything we do. Many many times a day, we pray about Zion and Jerusalem to say, no, that part of you we hate. You know, you, it's inseparable. But by trying to separate us, they're attacking honestly the weakest point in the Jewish community, which is disengagement or apathy, and trying to separate those folks. But there's, it's not all bad news. The Jewish community is strong. It's stronger than ever, despite these enemies and the, the the response, not just from the Jewish community, but from folks all over the world has really been strong and continues to be strong. Right. And as you mentioned, it's not all the bad news. Actually, the Abraham Accords are one of the best news for the Middle East. And following the signing of the Abraham Accords during the Trump administration in 2019, between Israel and four nations belonging to the Arab League, including the Kingdom of Bahrain, Morocco, Sudan, and the United Arab Emirates, there was a new day in the Middle East. And these countries committed to pursuing a vision of peace, security, and prosperity in the Middle East and around the world. And during our visit to the Middle East last year, on the one-year anniversary of the signing of the Abraham Accords, uh, Joel Anansami and I had the opportunity to visit the UAE and meet with business and media leaders and those in government. And we encountered a number of Israeli groups, tourists and business leaders alike. One must remember that Israel and UAE had no diplomatic relations. Hence, Israelis uh, were not able to visit these Arab states prior to signing of the Abraham Accords. And during the recent Negev summit... A few weeks ago, Israel hosted foreign ministers of the UAE, Bahrain, Morocco, Egypt, and including the U.S. Secretary of State Tony Blinken. Emilia Grossman, you just returned from your trip to Israel. Uh, what are your observations on the ground about the progress of the Abraham Accords and how do they impact U.S. policy in the region? First of all, it's important to note, and it's so gratifying to see the Abraham Accords come to fruition because it flipped all conventional wisdom uh, on its head, right? As we've heard, and everybody's seen the video of John Kerry saying, you can't have peace with the Arab nations if you don't have peace with the Palestinians. No, 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 it was the quote that he said, it's not possible, uh, but it's it was possible. And we knew it was possible. Everybody that, that's familiar with the region knew it was possible and that the, the Arab world at large, especially in the Gulf states, and even the, the countries around uh, Israel, they're sick of the Palestinian issue. They know that the Palestinian government has been offered everything that they've ever asked for, and they just squander every opportunity, and they realize that this is just gamesmanship. It's obvious because they've been saying it forever. You said you were you were you you guys were in Israel for the one-year anniversary of Abraham, of course. So was I. I was in the Knesset that day for the ceremony. And if you remember what Bibi Netanyahu said, Prime Minister Netanyahu said, uh, when he spoke, he said, no one makes peace with the weak. They make peace with the strong, and only because of Israel's economic and military strength and political strength did these countries come to the table. 
And the ambassadors for all those nations stood up and applauded, right? Because that's, that's the reality. And it's the economic opportunity that Israel provides also with the help of the United States and its economic ties to the United States and social and political ties. And really, it's a dawn of a new day. And I just came back from Israel, like you said, five days ago. I'll be there again next week. And um, there are so many opportunities happening from on the business sector. We all know that real peace and real ties happens in the private sector, not in the government. Signing a piece of paper is nice. It gives people the green light. But if the, if the peoples from both nations don't join, then nothing happens. There's social groups that are going back and forth. There's political groups. There's, there's business groups. There's investments. Uh, there was just a free trade agreement signed with the UAE. There's so many business opportunities going back and forth. It's wonderful to see. At some point, the world will notice that the, the Jewish people, the state of Israel, is looking for peace. And whoever comes to the table looking for peace through strength, not, not to give up land and give up what the state of Israel is. But if they want to, if anyone wants to have peace with the state of Israel, they can. And that, that, that it's a wonderful uh, opportunity for economic and social development between the countries. Mayor Groisman, in the past few months, uh, we've been in close contact with the ambassadors uh, representing Bahrain, as well as the ambassador Alatoiba representing the UAE. Are we working on some of these initiatives to ad address the challenges that they face? And one of them is the Iran nuclear threat. Ambassador Alatoiba wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal communicating the greater concerns of these attacks from Yemen, from these Houthi uh, terrorist groups that are targeting oil facilities in Saudi Arabia and UAE. And that has become a greater concern in destabilizing the region. And according to published reports this past week in Washington, a group of five House Democrats held a press conference and were later joined by 15 of their Democrat colleagues to express concerns over the prospects of reviving the 2015 nuclear agreement with Iran. And Republican House leaders, as well as in the Senate, have strongly opposed the Vienna talks, where the Biden administration on the sidelines, one must keep in mind, is depending on China and Russia, not our allies, to assist the Biden administration in brokering a deal with Iran, a state sponsor of terrorism. Now, one of the countries assisting America is none other than Putin's Russia, which just invaded Ukraine and is destroying a nation of 40 million people, leaving thousands dead. Now, when viewing Iran, the Wall Street Journal in a recent report stated, and I quote, Iran sanctions evasion techniques are sophisticated and sweeping. The journal reported last month that Tehran has developed a clandestine banking and finance system to handle tens of billions of dollars in annual trade banned from U.S.-led sanctions, unquote. In fact, experts and leaders across the country have stated that the Iran nuclear deal would be disastrous, handing over to the Iranian regime access to $90 billion in foreign currency reserves and sanctions a relief to some of the world's worst terrorists. In this context that we're talking about, Mayor Groisman, what is your take on the troubling issue that Israelis and Jewish Americans have raised regarding the Iran nuclear threat? And, and what do we do as the next steps in safeguarding peace and stability and prosperity in this region? The most troubling part of the whole thing is that it's Israelis and American Jews mostly raising their voices on the Iran deal. When if you listen to Iran, it's the United States and Israel as a whole that, they're, that they want to intimidate and possibly, God forbid, attack. So this is really a concern for the whole world. Luckily, there's been, there was a letter from a, a group of Democratic congressmen also this, this week opposing the deal. The problem is that the deal is going to go forward. For all signs are that the deal is going to go forward. The, the Biden administration has seemed to be to have given in to the fact that Iran is going to develop a nuclear weapon, but for Israel's intervention, possibly. So they've seemed to have shifted to a policy of containment 
rather than a policy of prevention. We've heard for 15 years the drumbeat of prevention, prevention, prevention. We can't let Iran get a nuclear weapon. You don't hear that anymore. It's all about containment. Let's have them, they're going to get it, and let's see how we can control it and what that does to the region. And that's problematic to the whole world. And we're seeing the world up in arms now with, with what Russia is doing to Ukraine, which they should be. The world should be up in arms with what's, what's happening there. But it, it's so easy to see the connection, the nexus between Russia and Iran and China and Venezuela and this parallel economy that's happening around the world. Now, if we turbocharge that with nuclear weapons, we can ima only imagine what, what could happen, what could be in this world. Now, the flip side of it is because of the previous Iran deal, I think that's really was one of the driving forces of the Abraham Accords, of you know, the, the different alliance between the Gulf states and the state of Israel, where they really need to get in order they were they already were working together behind the scenes, but it was time to really start working together in a strong fashion to show to put up some walls in defense against Iran and its allies in the region. So it's really something that we can't, as Americans, we can't really allow to, to just pass quietly. We need to push our friends in both parties and every level of government and everyone that's engaged in government from the outside and the inside. Everyone needs to be up in arms. We remember when Prime Minister Netanyahu spoke in Congress, I was lucky enough to be there in the room as well and, and pleading to the American lawmakers to stop this Iran deal. And uh, it didn't work. He got the Iran deal went through. It was a terrible deal that allowed Iran to develop a nuclear weapon within 10 years. The hope was, the misguided hope was that by allowing them into the, quote, family of nations, they would do things right. And we knew immediately that they weren't going to do that. and They didn't do that. Um, and now we really just need to go back to a policy of prevention and whatever it takes. It becomes even more obvious, as you mentioned, with the Russia's invasion of Ukraine, where we are not getting involved because of Russia's having nuclear weapons. So it's going to be the same analogy with Iran. If Iran wants to attack any country, we won't get involved because Iran will have a nuclear weapon. So that should not happen. Correct. And it's not just Iran, right? It's everybody in that parallel uh, nexus that I call I call it a parallel nexus to sort of to the free world, right? So we can put all these sanctions in place, but if there's those trade between Russia and China and the Venezuelas and Argentinas and all these countries that are lining up with them, right, then it becomes very difficult to really give these global sanctions that, that can become crippling and then actually lead to change. If we see what's happening in Russia, like you're saying, if they have a nuclear weapon and Iran has a nuclear weapon, then they, they have a stronghold. Now luckily the Israeli military and the, the military establishment in Israel is not going to allow Iran to have a nuclear weapon, in my opinion. And, and I hope they're going to continue to do what they've been doing for the last several years to keep delaying Iran and its, in its progress towards a nuclear weapon. Indeed, we all pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And next week, Jewish communities around the world will take time to reflect and observe Passover. And in Hebrew, it's Pesach or Pesach. And it's a sacred high holiday in Judaism. And Passover commemorates the story of the Jewish people's departure from ancient Egypt, liberation from slavery uh, from Egypt. And Mir Groisman, for our engaged listeners in the Midwest and the South and learning more about the significance of Passover for Jews, uh, could you kindly share with us the traditions of Passover and why it is so important uh, to the Jewish community and beyond? Passover and the story of Exodus, which is the story of Passover, is really the backbone of our Jewish identity. And there's so many layers and reasons as to why. So starting next week, um, it's a seven-day festivity, the first two days. Um, outside of Israel, one day in Israel are, are the, the high holiday days of it, where 
we gather around the table and we have uh, we have a dinner for seven days. We don't eat any leavened bread, any any rice, any pasta, you know, anything that that's leavened at all. We eat the, the famous matzah instead. And the story of the matzah is that when the Jews had to rush out of Egypt uh, with Moses to escape Pharaoh, there wasn't time uh, to, for the bread to leaven. So they really they put the uh, the dough in the oven and had to take it out quickly. So they got these crackers instead of bread, which ended up being better because they lasted longer uh, during the journey. So that's what we eat. And there's a tradition, the law of Passover, the main the main law in Passover, other than not eating leavened bread, is to teach your children the story of Passover. Uh, so we have something called a setter, which just means an order. That's the dinner. And the dinner, you go through the story, you read in detail the story of Passover. And there's so many important lessons in Passover. So first of all, when we talk about Israel and whether the Jews have a right to being in the land of Israel, the story of Passover is the proof. That's when we went from Egypt to Israel. We were enslaved in Egypt and we were able to fight for our freedom under the leadership of Moses and have a journey through the desert, get the Ten Commandments and come over to Israel. It's really the beginning of who we are. Uh, But in the story, we also learn and we read every single year that in every generation they rise up to destroy us and they fail because God Almighty will stand up and protect us. So that's one of the lessons of Passover. Another another lesson is we get desperate when not everyone in our community stands up together. But most people don't know that between only 15 to 20 percent of the Israelites at the time left Egypt. Everyone else was afraid to leave slavery. And they were they were comfortable in their in their life of slavery. You know, it's difficult to get up and leave when the situation is tough. Uh, but only from that percentage, we came up, came together and formed a, a, a nation, a country and move forward. And it's really a story of perseverance. It's a story of understanding struggle and knowing that through unity and strength uh, that we can continue to, to not just survive, but thrive. And that's the story of the Jewish people. We had an opportunity to watch a few of your videos and learn about your unique background and ancestral roots. So could you kindly share with us about it? My parents and grandparents are from Argentina. My family went over uh, from Russia to Argentina during the Jewish pogroms in 1892. One side of my family and then Poland in 1905 from the other side of my family. My parents moved in the mid-70s during the uh, dirty war in Argentina when the military took over, made life difficult for many young people um, and Jews as well. And I was born here and uh, born actually in Washington, D.C. My father was at Georgetown University at medical school there and came down to Miami in the early 80s. South Florida is the most interesting community because, like I said, we all come from somewhere. And uh, it's really the story of the American dream because everybody, everybody's here together to work hard and to create a community. And I, I heard uh, someone say this last week, which is um, the only country that has the word dream attached to it is America. There's no European dream. There's no Russian dream. There's an American dream. And that's really the story of South Florida. Right. And yeah. based on the census, it's actually more than 20% of uh, Floridians are foreign born. That's right. And the rest of us are first generation. So, <laughs> <laughs> Mayor Groysman, we thank you so much for joining us on America's Roundtable. And we encourage our listeners to certainly view uh, some of the great videos that Mayor Groysman has on, on social media channels and uh, just to learn more about Israel and the importance of U.S.-Israel relations and what it means for our countries, our peoples, securing peace through strength and for greater prosperity. Mayor Groysman, thank you so much for your continued leadership. Thank you, Mayor Groysman. Thank you. Thanks for such an interesting conversation. 
This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit, in partnership with Lanza Broadcasting's 2FM radio stations in Michigan and the Midwest, and Supertalk Mississippi Media's 12 radio stations and 50 affiliate stations in the South. We thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I'm Joe Ladinsami, your co-host, joined by Natasha Sodorchi, economist and co-founder of the International Leaders Summit and the Jerusalem Leaders Summit, and our distinguished guest hosts and presenters, the former governor of Mississippi, Phil Bryant, and the Honorable Morris McTeague, QSO. America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C. brings together leading voices from business, government, media, technology, healthcare, and the public policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Spotify, Google, and Fireside. Visit iLeadersSummit.org. iLeadersSummit.org.